Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Tom Jennings is my guest today, documentary filmmaker, his company 1895 Films. They do it all. And this is a really interesting conversation for me because Tom has a really unique style of filmmaking. He's the guy behind the real right stuff, which is airing on Disney Plus right now, Diana in her own words. But he's done films just about on any subject. It's it's pretty wild. You know, Apollo missions to the moon, Bernie Madoff, Apollo 13, the DC sniper, Clinton impeachment. I mean, just any event that's happened in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. Tom has probably done a film about it at some point. But he has this really interesting style where instead of a traditional documentary where you sit down and you interview the people that were involved in an event or you talk to historians or, you know, whatever, it's driven by interviews usually. And then you can kind of fill in your story holes with voiceover with the narrator. Tom doesn't do any of that. All of his films are done with existing footage and existing narration that are contemporary to the story that he's telling in that moment, which is a really cool approach. So going back to old archive news footage, finding audio clips, whether that's interviews that the main players that are part of this story had done over the years, whether that's news reporters talking about the event that was happening, all of it is contemporary to the event that you're watching about. So it not only gives you a sense of the story, but it gives you a sense of the story in the way that it was covered in the time. And it gives you a sense of sort of how history gets written in real time, which I find really fascinating. So, yeah, his process is just really cool. Obviously, there were major adaptations that had to be made because of COVID and dealing with archive footage. But in some ways, because he's not actually in production, you know, every film is basically very post-intensive, but, but very little, if any, production. He had very different challenges at his company than a lot of the other people that I've talked to that have had to figure out, okay, how do we actually get, you know, camera people and audio techs and actors with masks and COVID tests and all that. Tom didn't have to deal with that, but he did have to figure out with everybody working from home, including a lot of archive houses, how does he get his footage? How does he edit? How does his team edit? So it's a really fascinating conversation for that. I will also say Tom is an amazing storyteller. And maybe that's not surprising because he's a documentary filmmaker, but you're going to hear this. <laughs> there were three, four times I was just on the edge of my seat. It's a fun conversation, and he has had a really interesting career, really interesting path into this, and uh, just a really unique approach to filmmaking. So go check out his most recent project is The Real Right Stuff. It started streaming uh, last fall on Disney+, and it's still up there. So go check it out. I watched it. It's phenomenal. Here it is, my conversation with Tom Jennings. Well, I want to start with just sort of looking back on these last, you know, I guess it's been 13 months plus now at this point, this crazy pandemic year. What has 2020, 2021 been like for you? Well, it's been hell, <laughs> to be okay. honest with you. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, through the fires of hell, you know, you uh, often come out with uh, really good things. and. We, my company, uh, 1895 Films, uh, which is based in Calabasas, California, we have been able to keep everyone employed, okay. and, although working from home. We've been able to sell more projects during the uh, pandemic nice. that will carry us through 
in the next year because you're only good as your next show in right. documentary television. Sure. So um, it's been very difficult, but we got a sense very early on, if you'll recall, Heath, that uh, when New York was raging with COVID and California almost had none. Right. We started wondering, you know, California is such a populous state and L.A. County is so dense and maybe we should have plans set up uh, to have everyone work from home. Right. And, uh, I, you know, like most companies, a few of our editors work from home occasionally. And so we had kind of the bare bones set up for that. And we basically began figuring out how everyone could work from home and still maintain connections and feed off of the server that's in our office. Sure enough, COVID started getting bad. And just on a staff meeting, uh, not uh, well, last month, one of the staff members pointed out, do you realize it's been one year and a couple of days since we were in their office? We were out on March 8th, wow. you know, and that's when it was really just starting to rise. So we hedged our bets in a sense, but it, it really wasn't that much of a hedge in that you know, so what if we were wrong? So people worked out of their houses for a couple of months and then all, uh, we all went back to the office. Um, so we uh, erred on the side of caution and, and I am certainly glad that we did. Yeah. Well, I feel like you guys are set up in a way that you have the advantage, I guess, that so much of your work is dealing with archival footage and, you know, mm -hmm. assets that are already created. You're not having to go out into the field as much. I mean, there's certainly some original production, but I mm -hmm. feel like a lot of what mm -hmm. you guys do is sourcing other uh, other assets. So mm -hmm. in some ways, you, you're kind of at an advantage that a lot of other production houses probably weren't. Yes, but... <laughs> <There's> okay. A... <laughs> There's always a but. Sure. Don't forget, we were able, we were in production on, I don't know how many hours at the time, probably six or eight. You know, we're running usually, we run anywhere from, from 12 to 20 hours a year. So, you know, at, at any given time, we've got six or eight going. And in sure. thinking it through in that pre-planning process of, boy, we're all going to be working from home. And yes, at the time we were doing uh, probably most of the things were either heavily archived or all archived. And I could talk about that, but which is an interesting process. Sure. But what we realized was we could easily get the screeners from the sources that yeah. we're where we get our material. But when we lock the shows, we would need the masters in order to up res the final film yeah. for delivery. And many of those houses were starting to shutter at least temporarily, or they would, they wouldn't be able to get us the masters in a timely manner. And so what we did is we, you know, I had members of my staff that deal directly with the footage houses. We basically called them and said, you know, it's not looking too good. Yeah, right. We're at fine cut. And we pretty much know these are the clips that we're going to need from you, you know, because uh, from any given footage house, we might get anywhere from five minutes to 20 minutes of footage sure. uh, that goes into the show. And so we made arrangements with several of the footage houses, even though we were not to the frame, which is what they usually want uh, out of trust, because we've been doing this for so long 
they sent us masters, you know, with very long handles on them. Yeah. Uh, handles meaning, well, your audience. I know. Yeah. Audience, hopefully, so, hopefully uh, they know. Yeah. Just it gives you it gives you some padding when you're editing, so that right. you know if you decide so, a couple frames in this direction or that direction, right? Correct. But they were giving us masters with maybe a minute or two on each side. Oh wow. I mean, they were. Yeah, they they said you guys are great clients, you know, because we're we do so much archive based uh, programming, and they said here, you know, we don't know when we're gonna be back, we don't know how we're gonna access the masters or upload them to you from our homes, so here are the masters for your upcoming deliveries. And that was prescient on our part, I gotta yeah. tell you, because then we didn't have to go chasing the masters when everybody was truly shut down and we were able to complete. So that was, it was just kind of second guessing, you know, like what uh, worst case scenarios as far as how we deliver the programs. Yeah. I got to tell you, that was probably the last thing we thought of. But then when we thought of it, we were like, Oh my God, we have to get the masters. (laughs) We can't deliver the shows without the masters. Well, let me ask you about um, that too, because that's a process. It works well. Yeah. Well, that's a process that I don't fully understand, I guess. Like when you're dealing with with archive footage, like how Mm. much of it is full res digitized? Or like when you're saying you have to go back to the masters, is it literally like one inch tape or three quarter tape or something that like they have to re-digitize for you? No, no. What they do is, uh, well, sometimes, yes, if if it's a very unique material. But uh, what I mean is if we go to a footage house, like say uh, Getty Films, you know, they have tons of stuff. We'll say that we're looking for everything having to do with uh, Martin Luther King in 1968, for example, uh, which we made a film about uh, several years ago. But uh, that's a good example. And they will send us what they call screeners, which uh, because they're sending us dozens and dozens of hours of screeners for us to review they don't want to send high resolution screeners because one, they don't want their masters of the footage, the high resolution, you know, HD 2K. They don't want those floating around sure. because that's what they license. But also just the transferring of all that material becomes really cumbersome. Definitely. So they send us screeners that are maybe 20 to 25 percent of full density of the image. Yep. And then from all of that footage, we sort through it, pick what works. We get it down to a shot list for them. We give them time codes in and out on the screeners that they've given us. And then they send to us the final full resolution. You know, it doesn't get any better than this master footage that we cut into the show. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize just how potentially laborious that process could be on their end. For some reason, I just I imagined it all being Mm -hmm. kind of these full res digitized clips that, you know, they send you to low res screeners and, and you say, okay, I want from two minutes to four minutes. And, you know, it's a it's a click of a button, though, on their end, I always imagined I didn't. I didn't think about, I guess, that it is kind of manual. And, and to your point, you don't want to send a two-minute to four-minute chunk. You want to send a two-minute, eight-second, and 15 frames to, you know, two-minute yes. th- for, for their sake. That makes sense. Okay. Yes, yes. That's exactly how it's done. Yeah. 
Well, I, I want to ask you too, you know, talking about archive footage and things like I, I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of um, what you've sort of made your name on are these lost tapes or hidden tape series. And, you know, some mm -hmm. of them go back to very history. You talk about like Martin Luther King and things. And, you know, obviously mm -hmm. uh, the real right stuff was was sort of in that vein. A lot of that is, is film based mm -hmm. and, and video based. But you know, mm -hmm. there. Like I, I watched the Diana in her own words, which has been a big sensation mm -hmm. on Netflix uh, lately with the Crown. But I know you did that one a few mm -hmm. years ago. But like for a lot mm -hmm. of these projects, they're these very rare tapes that often haven't been heard or haven't been widely distributed. Like, how do you even go about finding that source material? <laughs> Well, I used to be a newspaper reporter, you know, <laughs> that's what my my training was. And uh, back when I learned to be a reporter, what uh, our professors hammered into our heads was the beauty of research and how to find things. Sure. And so when I transferred over to doing documentary television in the mid to late 90s by a complete fluke, by the way, I always thought I'd be a reporter and kind of burned out on it for a lot of reasons. And I took those skills with me. Uh, and I was first hired as a writer because I was a daily hard news journalist and sure. I knew how to write. And I could tell these stories and I could do them pretty quick, faster than most people could uh, who were coming up through the television ranks. And they'd be like, oh, this is great. Write another one, you know, write another one. You know, And I just mimicked what uh, shows they already had. But then when I started becoming a producer and then a director, and then I started my own company, I had to hire people to be researchers for me, uh, not to be dismissive of how I uh, train them. But the way I do it is uh, I say, uh, like Martin Luther King, if I was a piece of footage of Martin Luther King, in 1968, say, walking in the streets of Memphis, yeah. where would I live? Where would I live? Yeah. And the idea is that, you know, just don't go to the usual suspects. You have to think outside the box and you have to be willing to remember that not everything in the world is on the Internet. You have to pick up the phone and call people. You have to always be curious and uh, you never know where if you ask if someone says, I don't uh, I don't have anything like that. You always have to follow up and say, do you know anyone in town that might? Right. And sure enough, one name leads to another. It's just like being a reporter. You're just seeking something out that you think may exist. I also tell them other than, say, the missing 18 minutes of the Nixon tapes from the White House if you can think that a piece of archive exists, it probably does. Hmm. There's hmm. probably someone out there that has it. You know, I think a lot of documentary producers that use archive, uh, you know, in uh, a much more blight fashion, it's very easy to just go to the National Archives or any of the main footage houses and get the greatest hits tapes. Right. And everybody likes those because they're the greatest hits. But one thing that we do, even when we go to uh, places like, a, say, a television station, again, in, well, I was going to say Memphis, but that's a long story. They didn't keep their footage from the <laughs> It's actually, a, it's at the University of Memphis, and that's a whole other story, but yeah. they have it there. But imagine this, you're uh, uh, working for a television station in a town where a major news event occurs, 
and uh, you're a camera operator and you go out and, you know, back in the day, they would have like uh, film and 10 minute reels and then they would go to video and those were, they called them 30 minute loads, you know, with the tapes that would go in and out. So they're shooting and shooting and shooting and shooting. And then some runner would take the film footage or the tapes back to the newsroom where some frantic editor and producer, you know, starts to scan through what's been shot and they make a few uh, marks in and out on the footage and out of say a 30 minute load, they might pull uh, three or four minutes for that night's uh, newscast. And then that tape comes out of the editing machine and it's put on a shelf and 25 minutes of history is lost unless we look at it. Right. But that also assumes like that there's really good media management on the part of whoever's looking at like I, I just think in my own life like you know i started as a pa on this old house uh, for pbs and like when i was doing media management there at the time we were shooting d beta and there were some some advances being made with like mini dv technology as well mm-hmm. where occasionally mm-hmm. we would use you know a little you know camcorder or something either to shoot like little pov shots or sometimes mm-hmm. just you know artistic travel footage whatever it was but we didn't have mm-hmm. a system for archiving those mini DV tapes nearly as well as we did the D betas. And so like, right. I know when I left, there was a shoebox <laughs> sitting somewhere yeah. with 25 mini DV tapes with some level of label on them. Probably didn't have any sort of log attached to it to sort of know what's on it. Mm-hmm. Um, b- mm-hmm. But a lot of our sort of main stuff was heavily logged, time coded and, you know, real numbers and everything. Like, I can only mm-hmm. imagine, again, in that sort of environment you described, or even just thinking of, you know, the assassination of King, and there's a news director mm-hmm. saying, get over to the Lorraine Motel right now. There's news happening. We got to get it on it. Mm-hmm. Like, even something right. significant like that could be just set aside Correct. on somebody's desk in a newsroom. And, you know, who knows what happened to it? Correct. Well, all of the above is true. Most local, that's another thing that we do is we we often... Uh, like in the real right stuff, for example, something more current. We went to the little local affiliates in Cocoa Beach, Florida. Yeah. Because the space program was so huge there in the late 50s into the 60s. <laughs> and that was about all that was there at that time, too. There was, uh, there was not much else going on, I right. got to tell you. But they kept uh, most of their footage. And, you know, a- at least it would be labeled, if not by the day, by the month. Yeah. So we could go through it that way. But, you know, so we don't always go to the major news sources. You know, we, we as much as I love Walter Cronkite, for example, uh, you know, if uh, I don't want to hear him too often in our shows because right. people are so familiar with him. We're trying to tell stories in a way that feel fresh and new through old footage. So we look for the the local on-air guy who was out there at the launch pad telling us the story from a local point of view, someone who didn't necessarily get out of the local market. So no one's familiar with his voice or face and thinking, I've never seen this before, even though he's telling you a story that may be familiar. What we find is probably 80% of the local affiliates that we've ever contacted have not kept their footage, even from major events. The reason being, it was too cumbersome, as you say, it took up too much room. When the new videotape came along, it was very expensive. 
And so they would uh, take right, whatever yeah. they wanted from that day and then they would tape over it sure. four or five times until they couldn't use it anymore. So there was a lot of history that was lost that way. But eight out of 10 didn't keep their stuff. There's two that did. And it's always our job to find them. And even if the station doesn't have it, they'll say, oh, you know, Joe retired a couple of years ago and he loved keeping all that stuff. I think it's in his garage. Uh, you want you might want to give him a call. And I'm not kidding. And we'll call somebody that you know, retired from the, an affiliate who's just so passionate about their footage and thinking outside the box. You know, it's not just footage. But for us, you know, we have this format where we have no narrator and no right. interviews. Yeah. We put together a story with as uh, all the media we can get our hands on. And that includes an often forgotten vein of wonderful archive, which is radio. Uh, you know, because we, look, we work in a, a visual medium. Everybody thinks I got to get the footage. I got to get the footage. But radio is theater of the mind. Right. So if you have footage and stills, and then you get a great radio reporter who can talk while you're playing that stuff. There's real magic in that. And a perfect example, we did something for National Geographic that came out in uh, 2016. It was the 30th anniversary of the Challenger disaster. Sure. And Challenger's been done and done and done, you know, uh, rightly so. It's a, it's a, a compelling story and one that people need to remember. For those that don't remember, it was uh, famous for having a woman named Krista McAuliffe, who was going to be the first teacher in space. And in uh, gathering all the stuff, we went to NASA and NASA is great to work with. And they'll say, here's our 40 tapes, screeners, you know, of the Challenger stuff. Yeah. And they, you know, it's literally 40 hours of footage that they can release. And then you go to the major news organizations and uh, certainly go to the Reagan Library uh, in California because the, Ronald Reagan was president at the time. And, you know, we were finding a lot of stuff that felt very familiar to me. And I started to think, you know, where was Krista McAuliffe from? Oh, she was from Concord, New Hampshire. Mm. I bet that market covered her. Yeah. And so the TV stations, they didn't really have much other than a little snippet of something here or there. But then we called one of the radio stations based in Concord. And we got through to the right person that knew about the event and what they had. This guy was practically in tears. He said, we kept everything. We covered Krista the whole year. She was in training and our wow. news director was there. And he said, nobody's ever asked us for our footage before. Wow. And they were just blown away. And it became a main thread throughout you know, her hometown radio station covering her in the, the months leading up to the disaster and then being there live when it happened, it just brought, you know, so much emotion to the story that's already a highly emotional story. 
and using footage that nobody's ever heard outside of Concord, New Hampshire, if you were living there in 1986. Right. So radio is a great source that gets overlooked, and that's one of the first things we look for. Well, I want to ask you about that, too, because, you know, obviously with this Challenger story, but uh, with the Diana documentary as well, like mm. where audio just plays such a key role. And I mean, I get like as I'm thinking about it, you know, we, we talk about a radio cut sometimes as, you know, sort of the first yeah. pass and figuring yeah. out like what's the yeah. story going to be. But I imagine like not knowing what visuals you have and trying to sift through hours and hours of audio and say, okay, mm -hmm. I feel like this is a pivotal moment, but I don't know that I have the mm -hmm. footage to cover it. Like, do you just sort of have mm -hmm. to have faith that, like, this is a good moment? Yeah. I'm going to have to find <laughs> some sort of shot that will tell that story? Yeah, I, well, it, everyone is different. And every one of these, when, you know, we get about halfway through, I kind of just put my head down on the table and I say, this is the one that isn't going to work. We don't have... <laughs> this will break us. <laughs> yeah. But um, you mentioned Diana, which uh, as, uh, we're very grateful that Netflix had picked it up and married it with season four of The Crown because something like 10 million people have watched it around oh, wow. the world, which is quite something. And it's now on Disney Plus, by the way. It migrated over there, but it was originally done for National Geographic. And this speaks to your question directly, a, a kind of a, in a reverse engineering kind of way. Um, National Geographic asked us to do something for the 20th anniversary of Diana's death in Paris. And we knew that there would be lots of nonfiction programming coming out in 2017 because sure. it's Princess Diana. And of course, whenever they ask us to do one of these, all archive, no narrator, no interviews, they say, oh, and please make sure that you find stuff that nobody's ever seen or heard before. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it's Princess Diana. You know, I, everything has been seen and heard. Right. I love my executives at that network. And they're, they say things like, you're a clever guy, Tom. You'll find something. <laughs> and... Uh, the reverse engineering is we knew that we had to cover uh, what we we wound up calling it the seven pillars of the Diana story. Yeah. You know, she meets Charles, they get married, they have William, they have Harry, you know, and you have to cover these major events that everyone knows. Otherwise, people are thinking you're not telling me the whole story. Right. Where's her wedding? Diana's particularly fascinating uh, because in thinking and trying to find something new, um, I was a reporter, like I said, a newspaper reporter in the 90s, and um, I was fascinated not so much by Diana, but when Andrew Morton wrote his book mm. uh, that came out in 1992, and I was fascinated by it because he was absolutely pilloried in the British press. They said, this is all lies. He was making it up. I mean, you know, he was, uh, you know, drawn and quartered as the British like to do. And uh, it was only after she died that he came out and said, you know, and everyone who didn't believe me, uh, Diana was the source for mm -hmm. my book, yeah. Diana herself. And I have the tapes to prove it. But I'm not going to let you listen to the tapes. Uh, but here are the transcripts. And of course, 
everyone all of a sudden said, whoa, sorry, Andrew, that we called you all those names and didn't believe you. So I knew about those tapes. And uh, this also speaks to another research archive question. Uh, you never know until you ask. Right. So I thought, I'm going to call Andrew Morton and I'm going to be the guy to get those tapes from him. <laughs> <laughs> And I, uh, what I did is I called this publisher uh, who kindly said, uh, Andrew's been asked this many times before, but I will put him in touch with you. And he called. I think he called because, you know, we were we had the backing of National Geographic. It was a legitimate program. And yeah. uh, I explained who I was and, you know, I'd known about his story and the tapes. And I said, um, you know, we'd love to use those tapes in our documentary. And we already knew we were going to do it. No narrator, no uh, interviews. Yeah. And uh, the first thing he said was, uh, get in line, mate. You're about the <laughs> 2000th producer to ask me that. Sure. And um, he literally said, and he'll confirm this. Uh, he literally said, I'm taking those tapes to my grave. <laughs> And I'm like, well, this is going to go nowhere fast. So I, I said, Andrew, Andrew, wait, wait, wait. We do this really differently. We kind of specialize in this really unique way of telling the story. There's no narrator and there are no interviews. Mm. Imagine this film being Diana narrating it herself. And there was this long pause. I thought he'd already hung up, right? <laughs> right. And he said, uh, no one's ever asked me to do it that way before. And I said, well, that's how we want to do it. And he said, how soon can you be in London? Wow. <laughs> so uh, the next day I was on a plane to London. I landed <laughs> the following morning. And uh, this may be more info than you need, but no, it's this a, is a great. great little story. Yeah, It was pouring rain and I wound up taking a cab into town. And then they, they, they told me to take the tube stop to the publisher's office. It was just easier that way. And I did. And I got to his publisher's office uh, in South London somewhere. And it was right out of like Harry Potter. It had a thatched roof and ivy on the walls. And I walked in kind of soaking wet. And I met the publisher. And then I met Andrew. And they took me into this uh, kind of writer's conference room, very British, uh, as you can imagine. Yeah. And Andrew brought out this bank safe deposit box. And he opened it up and he said, these are the original cassettes like wow. he was showing them to me. And I remember saying, oh, can I touch them? You know, and <laughs> he let me and he goes, but we already had them digitized. So, we, you know, we don't mess with these. But I thought I'd just show them to you because yeah. you seem like the kind of guy that would appreciate it. And I did very much. And then uh, an assistant brought in tea and continued to bring in tea <laughs> all day long. Because there are seven hours of Diana yeah. and Andrew and I and, and actually an executive for National Geographic came over from the London office. And the three of us sat there pretty much speechless for seven hours. And I remember the pouring rain because the room had a uh, skylight and yeah. it was raining. We were drinking tea and it was like Diana was sitting in the room with us. Wow. Because the way the tapes were made is Diana had a, a friend named Dr. James Colthurst who was friends with Andrew Morton. And Diana asked Colthurst to ask Morton if he would write her book. 
And of course, he agreed. So Morton would give Coulter's questions, and then he would literally ride his bicycle as he normally did through the gates of Kensington Palace and would be waved through because he was a good friend of Diana's. And he brought a little tape recorder with him, and they would find some quiet corner of the palace, and he would sit there and ask the questions from Morton. But when Diana would respond, she would respond like she was talking to her best friend right. and not to a reporter. Sure. So the tapes are very colloquial. And uh, when it finished, we just, the three of us sat there in silence for a moment. And Andrew said, what do you think? And the first thing out of my mouth is, she's so funny. <laughs> you know that Yeah, was? right. Because she was telling Joe and her laughter was amazing and because you don't think of her laughing. Right. But getting back to your original point, what we did is we had our seven pillars of Diana, of which she talked about. Uh, we eventually got the we made the deal with uh, Andrew, and uh, we got the recordings, and we went through, and there were 140 story points that Diana talked about during the seven hours. Yeah. Uh, so when she talked about the pillars stuff, it was uh, great because that helped. But then what we purposely did is we found stories that she narrates. Like there's one, if you've, you've seen the film, where she talks about this black dress that she wore the first time they went out. Right. That was heavily covered by the media. So we had Diana telling the story, and we had all these stills and footage, and we had a news reporter commenting on it. And the whole theme of the film was, here's the media telling us how happy Diana is living a fairy tale life and here is the real behind the scenes story of diana telling you what was really going on and how already she was already miserable so we picked between the pillars we purposely picked story points that she narrates where we knew we could find a lot of footage and images to go with it so even though we're making the film in 2016 with audio from 1991 describing scenes from 1980 and 81 it sounds like diana sitting in a narration booth right. narrating the film for us and it was magic wow what That's a story we, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is so cool That's and just how we did it i, I mean I, I i just thinking of the the faith that andrew placed in you with these tapes Tremendous. and even just like you know, that idea of like, why did he call you in the first place? You know what I mean? Like, j- just to say you're number 2000 in line, <laughs> like that's, yeah. there's, there's a reason, yeah. you know, it was almost like a front, it sounds like that, like, let me see if you're legit or not. But there there was something in the way that you pitched it or, you know, your credentials that made him say, hmm, maybe this guy's worth talking to. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it was a lightning struck. You yeah. You don't get that kind of archival material regardless of what you think of diana and uh, her life she was you know such a revered figure in many ways but she was also the most photographed woman in the world and probably still is right and to be able to get these tapes that turn the monarchy on its head through yeah. his book was i definitely appreciated the trust he placed in us and we've made darn sure that everything in there was extraordinarily accurate. 
in that, you know, you, a lot of Diana document, a lot of documentaries in general, but Diana's a good example. They'll be telling a story from, say, 1985, but, you know, the editor or producer will really like these pictures of Diana from 1992. And they'll right. just, like, put them and be like, no, that is wrong. Yeah. You know, you need to be, if not at the actual event, we had a rule of three months, like if she was talking about something in general in 1985 and not a specific event, like say the dress story, um, we had a rule we could not use, would not use images that were more than three months on either side of the general period in which she was speaking because we wanted to be true and accurate because we knew that that kind of storytelling using her voice would be highly scrutinized, which it was, but no one's was able to come back and say, you got that part wrong. Um, Now they can disagree with what she said, but we approached it from a journalistic point of view. Here's what she had to say. You can believe her or not, but this is her telling her story the first time in a way that nobody's ever seen or heard before. And we were going to make sure, you know, my editors and I, we uh, we say that uh, this film is clean to the frame. Right. There isn't a frame in here that hasn't been scrutinized and verified so that if we're questioned at all, we can defend it, uh, you know, to our dying day that we made sure that it's presented in the most fair and accurate way possible. And I think that comes from my background in journalism. (laughs) It's funny how it kind of all comes back to that. That's awesome. It it all comes back together. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about, you know, this style that you have where there's no narration, no interviews, the one Mm. element that you do have full control over and can be as original as you want is with music. And I'm curious sort of what your process mm. is, you know, are, is it original compositions? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, stock music of some kind? Like where, where does the music come from and how do you go about auditioning songs for each moment in a film? Well, we are very fortunate in that, uh, especially for the National Geographic and now Disney Plus films that we're doing. Through National Geographic, they have uh, some kind of overall deal with Hans Zimmer's production company, the oh, famous wow. composer. Sure. And um, Hans uh, is a really wonderful guy, and he has a tremendous staff of uh, composers. And on many of our films, Hans will be listed as a producer. He will sometimes write maybe an opening, but in general, uh, he'll kind of oversee and approve what his staff composers are doing. So for those films, they are composed, you know, from soup to nuts and then performed by a live orchestra. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, so uh, now not every network can uh, pays the freight for that kind of stuff, but sure. for many sure. of the real uh, blue, like Diana uh, the real right stuff, uh, our Apollo missions to the moon, uh, which did very well for them. Those were all scored with a live orchestra. And we meet very early on with uh, Hans has a wonderful business partner named uh, Russell Emanuel. They're based out of Santa Monica, California. And Russell and I will kind of go over the themes that we're talking about in the film and, um, you know, the sounds that we're looking for and how we can improve on what other documentaries of the past have done. And having a live orchestra just really elevates it. But sure. I'll tell you a quick story about 
what Hans Zimmer taught me. We were in London for uh, something, uh, and um, uh, Hans was there composing for a film at a studio, and uh, we set up with his office that uh, we could go and meet with him. My wife was traveling with me and our uh, we have a young son. We have two young sons, but only one at the time. So we went and we met with Hans to talk about the Apollo film, you know, because he was going to guide his team on how to make it really special. So we went we went into the studio and he had talked with me and emailed me before and Russell had filled him in on who I was and we walk in and uh, this is uh, uh, typifies who he is. He said, he sees me. He knows who I am because we have the appointment. He goes, you, I don't really have much to say to you, to my wife. You're lovely. <laughs> and then he grabs our young son. who's like one year old at the time. And he says, all I want to do is hold this baby. <laughs> that was my introduction to Hans Zimmer. So we sat outside on this patio for four hours. And he was, you know, talking about various stories and how he wrote scores. And, and we get around to Apollo and he goes, well, do you remember I was alive during the moon landing? But we were covering all of the Apollo missions. And, yeah. I said, do you remember the moon landing? I said, you know, I don't really remember, but I do remember Apollo 8. And I remember Apollo 8. You would appreciate this because Jim Lovell was from Cleveland, Ohio, sure. one of the astronauts in Apollo 8. And um, it was the first time that Apollo had gone outside of Earth's orbit. And it had uh, gone around the moon several times. And they were flying back on Christmas Eve. 1968 and uh there was going to be this famous it's now what's called the famous christmas eve broadcast from space from apollo 8 and i said i remember apollo 8 because why do you remember apollo 8 i said because that was at a time in cleveland ohio when you know what a six-year-old boy could walk to the corner store uh, to buy candy and there was either six or seven on christmas eve and I, I told him, I remember going to the store and I remember going back home. It was only a couple of blocks. And I remember the uh, snow. It was so cold. Again, Cleveland, right. that the ice was crunching under my feet and the moon wasn't quite full, but I, it was above my street. And I remember and I've told Hans this. I said, I remember looking up the moon. And then looking back down my street to my house and realizing I need it because my mom had told me, you need to be home in time for the Christmas Eve broadcast. You know, it was a big deal. Yeah. And I, so I, I just kept looking at the moon and then looking down to my house and my thinking of the living room. And, and I remember thinking, those guys up there are going to talk to me on my television mm. in my living room yeah. live. And, you know, Hans loved that story. And he says, well, what did that mean to you? And I said, it was magic. And he said, that's what your film's about. It's about magic. Wow. <laughs> you know, he thinks in big themes. Right. And I learned more in those four hours of approaching something, even with 
all archived and you think, oh, it's, you know, tired old footage. Well, not only do we present the stories in a really unique way, but I went to the school of Hans to remind myself that something like recounting all of the Apollo missions in a National Geographic documentary isn't just about people going up to the moon. Right. It's about the magic of a little kid and wondering what's possible out there. Yeah. That's oh. that's that's how we approach our music. Well, and I love stories like that because I, I've had some of those moments in my career, too, where like, mm -hmm. you know, you sit down with a good composer or even, you know, graphic designer or something, you know, doing some uh, some animations and you want to sort of have a technical conversation or you think that's where it should go. You know, I want to make yes. sure there's lots of reds with this or whatever. But if you can just say, look. I want to convey a feeling of this, or I want to explain this. Right. You know, I had a great composer that I worked with for many years, that same kind of thing where I just say, I want something that feels adventurous. I want a track that feels comfortable, like you're sitting around a campfire and like mm. not expecting the, you know, I thought he would want to hear, I want an adagio with a violin or, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. And more cello. <laughs> yes. And, and and he could totally just take this idea of, you know, sitting around a campfire with an acoustic guitar and turn it into something completely exactly what I didn't know I wanted. And it sounds like it's it's that sort of thing where you can, you know, kind of riff yeah, with somebody. Like that. Yeah, yeah. At a very deep level. And it's not uh, it's mm -hmm. not about the, the execution. It's about the idea behind it. And if they're talented they know how to execute the thing you want, which is just awesome. And then when they marry that to picture, yeah. you know, they're coming at it from like the campfire, the magic, whatever it is, knowing that, you know, what the pictures, you know, because we give them rough cuts and sure. kind of like start gently composing until we lock it down for them. But they're coming at it from that thematic point of view certainly putting in the accents where needed, you know, getting big when it needs to get big, you know, sure. they do the basics, but the overall approach is one that uh, goes far beyond just some editor going through a music library right. and trying to find something that sounds right, because that's basically how it's done otherwise. Yeah. They're in alignment with you creatively the whole time. Yeah. And that taught me a lot, you know, even though I'd been making films for several, many years at that point, um, you know, Hans, whenever we just got to that, you know, he, I could sum up the whole thing in one word, you know, for a composer Yeah, and they ran with it and yeah. it was terrific. Oh, that's so good. I'd like to tell you, speaking of music, can I tell you one quick story? Sure. So in our real right stuff, this is one of my favorite archive stories. I mentioned we went to the Cocoa Beach affiliates yeah and they kept their stuff well one thing we try and do like with the space stuff is not just rely on the astronauts and mission control because you know you have to really be into just watching all of that and there are some great films that have done it that way but we want to know what's going on on planet earth you know right. what are people experiencing what was the news of the day so it kind of transports you back in time and in going through the Cocoa Beach footage, there's in the real right stuff, there's this at like a holiday in. Oh, yeah. With in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Beach. That song, right. There's this group called the We Three Trio. <laughs> yep. Uh, two girls and a guy. And they played this great song that 
I, but no one's ever heard. Apparently, it was uh, huge for like a minute in the United States, and then they vanished. Yeah. And my, one of my researchers sent it to me. Uh, he, was, he was so funny. He goes, I have a present for you because he knows how much I like that. <laughs> and I watched it. I said, this is great. And then, you know, the producer goes on and goes, I, and I said to him, can we license this? He goes, I'm going to try because music licensing is a whole different animal sure. than just getting uh, Getty to sign off on some footage that they own. The song was never copyrighted, but uh, National Geographic and Disney Plus, you know, they have very high standards, especially when it comes to music. And so uh, in order to do our due diligence to prove that we did everything we could to find out whether or not there was a copyright hold on the song, we turned over every rock and we found out who was in the We Three trio. And one of our uh, researchers then discovered that uh, all three have since passed. They're no longer with us. And we thought we were at a dead end. We, you know, we couldn't find any descendants. And then she found uh, a listing for where the funeral was held, the funeral home for one of the members of the We Three trio like wow. 20 years ago. Yeah. So she called the funeral home. This is the kind of stuff we do and said, this is an odd question, but you buried so-and-so, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, we're trying to find their descendants to see if they could uh, help us license a song that they performed <laughs> in 1960. I'm sure it made this person's day at the funeral home. Yeah, right. So he went and they funeral homes keep their records. He found the, the records from that uh, funeral service and he gave to us the name and phone number, which was still good, of the woman's son. Wow. And we called him and he said, oh, yeah, mom said she played in some day. I mean, you know, he wasn't even around then. Right. And um, we were able to get enough of it. It wasn't a license, but, uh, you know, like, as far as I know, this is my mother and my mother's song. And it was enough of a license to uh, for the powers that be at the networks to allow the that wonderful, wonderful song to be uh, remain in the show. And uh, we look at it as one of our great victories that was achieved by actually calling a funeral home to yeah. try and find the descendants of someone who uh, b performed for a news crew in 1960 in Cocoa Beach, Florida. <laughs> that is wild. Well, I want to wrap yes. it up with one quick question for you, Tom, yes. because you have worked on film. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the Apollo era and the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. but obviously you've done mm -hmm. films that deal with very contemporary issues as well. You know, mm -hmm. and it's funny, yes. like in this day and age, there's a recording of everything that happened, whether it's security footage or people's cell phones or news footage or, you right. know, whatever. And like, you know, you talk about finding this gem of, of uh, you know, a song from the 50s, like. Have you found mm -hmm. sort of what your comfort zone or your groove is in terms of like, I really like this decade or this era because, you know, for what, whether it's less footage, more footage, whatever. I just I'm curious, like what you yeah. like working in the most. As far as footage goes, uh, you know, we did the L.A. riots. I was a reporter in L.A. when yeah. the riots happened. So 
I was very familiar with the LA riots and uh, I did some media interviews at the time when we did that documentary. And, you know, the guy that shot the footage of Rodney King being beaten by the LAPD, uh, his name was George Holiday. And I said, the difference between then and now is we're all George Halliday's. Right. The problem is that uh, not everybody necessarily takes a great image. Uh, there's, uh, there's just too much content. But for me, the 60s and the 70s are my favorite eras to tell stories, maybe part the first part of the 80s as well. And the reason for that is I was alive during much of that time. And one of the rules that, uh, you know, we talk about at my company is, you know, for, for people that are old enough to uh, been around during some of these events is what did I miss? What did I forget? Mm. What have I never seen? Yeah. You know, so that's where we begin with this stuff. And it's really, you know, the 60s and 70s is really when you start to get a lot of great footage. I mean, this all started actually with the first show I ever wrote, which was a Discovery Channel series where none of the writers wanted to take the job because it was called uh, Rivals. The series was about people like Martin Luther King and George Wallace and yeah. you know, like biography, except two people who were rivals. Well, the last one in the series was Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm. And uh, no one wanted to do it because they weren't rivals. Uh, you know, unless you believe the conspiracy theories, right. they, they didn't know each other. Ruby knew Oswald, but Oswald never met him until Ruby put a gun in his stomach and right. killed him. I remember being fascinated by the Kennedy assassination story, you know, in later years when I was old enough to appreciate it. And uh, I had found uh, when in doing that story, they asked me to do some research for it. And there's this great place in Dallas called the Sixth Floor Museum. Oh, yeah. I've been there. And, it's right on Daily Plaza yeah. there. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's right there. And I found it was not long after they had first opened. And I talked with a guy named Gary Mack, who was the curator at the time, passed away a few years ago. They actually asked me to be one of the speakers at his funeral because Gary and I became very close. And this sums up why I like that era in that I have vague memories of the late 60s and, you know, the Kennedy assassination being discussed a lot on the TV news. Gary had worked in the local TV market down there. He had left that to work for the Sixth Floor Museum. He found out that all the stations, you know, like we discussed earlier, their back rooms were piled high with everything that was shot over those four days when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. And they were going to literally throw out the tapes. They had kept, wow. you know, the highlights real. Yeah. And Gary said, you know what? Give me the tapes. You, and all the stations wound up giving Gary the tapes because at that time, archive wasn't that big a business. Right. And um, he said, and in exchange for us taking care of it, please give me the rights. So all of this footage is at the Sixth Floor Museum. And in talking with Gary, he sent me dozens of hours of screeners where they would literally just turn the camera on in the hallways of the Dallas police station. Wow. And it was like you were sitting there watching it. And I remember I said to Gary at the time, I could just like watch it. It's like, you don't even need interviews. You right. could just literally, this is on my first show. You could just let this stuff play. And he goes, Oh, I know it's amazing. And 
that was in like 1996. Yeah. And in 2008, National Geographic bought my first all archive, no narrator, no interview show. And it was on the Kennedy assassination. Oh, wow. It took me 12 years to sell that idea. And it really, when I go back and look at it, I could have made it uh, five times as long, but, you know, I'm fascinated by it. You really feel like you're just sitting in the middle of this event unfolding before your eyes. And in its own way, it's magic because right. you feel like you're there. Oh. So the eras that I was alive in, but I've either forgotten, I missed it, or I don't remember, those are the ones that appeal most to me. All right, there we go. Tom Jennings. Crazy stories, right? Like every piece of that, I was just like, what? Tell me more. <laughs> it was so cool. What an amazing guy. What a cool career. What a fun approach, you know? It's, it's so original, and uh, it's cool. I loved it. The Real Right Stuff is streaming now on Disney+. Plus. Diana, in her own words, the other major film that we uh, mentioned there, is also streaming on Disney+. Plus. Go check those out. Tom Jennings. All right. I have new episodes every Thursday. You're going to want to come back next Thursday because I got a really special episode. If you don't know, this podcast started almost a year ago to the week. It's like this week or next week was the one year anniversary, will be the one year anniversary, I guess, of this show. My very first episode was with Scott Foley, the actor, uh, and we talked all about what he was going through during COVID. And uh, just, you know, it's the very first time I ever did this. So trying to figure out what the story was and how we were all dealing with it and having no idea that a year later we'd still be at the edge of all this. Scott is actually going to come back and join me next week. So make sure you tune in for that. It's going to be a one-year kind of retrospective, catching up on some of the projects that he mentioned a year ago that got delayed and now are starting to air or starting to be filmed again and just what he's done with his life in that time. I'll give you a hint. There's a cross-country move involved in there. So really interesting. Go check that out. Coming next Thursday, hit that subscribe button. And in the meantime, subscribe to the newsletter. Go to HeathRosella.com and your email address. This week's issue will be all about Tom Jennings. I'm at HeathRosella on Twitter and Instagram. I will talk to you guys soon. Have a good week. Stay safe. <laughs>